Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. That was a hell of a weekend, wasn't it? College football weekend. A lot to talk about on today's show. If you're a Mariners fan, let's hear it for the M's. Job for the Mariners. Keeping it going. They're host. We'll talk this week about the Mariners, but we got to dive into... The game, not the game this week, but the game two weeks from now at Autzen Stadium. We'll talk a little bit about Oregon and UCLA. Chip Kelly has the Bruins cooking. Jonathan Smith and the Beavers. I keep hearing all this talk about how lucky they got on Saturday. No, no, no. You make your own luck. You don't get to say you had bad luck if that happens to you. You made a bad play if you're Stanford. Oregon State made the play. Stanford didn't. Oregon State walked off a winner. Beavers needed that win. They now have a much softer portion of their schedule coming up. Washington State aside, they'll get Colorado, they'll get Cal, they'll, you know, they they have entered their sweet spot in their schedule. We'll see if the Beavers can put it together. We'll talk about the Ducks. We'll answer the burning question. How many contenders, true contenders, remain in the Pac-12 conference? Did we eliminate somebody over the weekend? Some think so. I don't. We'll talk about all of that. We'll talk about Matt Rule as well. He is available after the Carolina Panthers fired him. He's 11-27 and 27 with the Panthers, but a very good college coach who will have a lot of opportunities. And uh, I kind of want to start with Matt Rule because he's an interesting study. And Stephen and I were talking about this off-air right before the show. He's an interesting study because he had success at Temple in football, and Temple had not really had any success in football. And Matt Rule had two 10-win seasons. And, like, the market made him prove that it wasn't a fluke. He won 10 wins, uh, won 10 games, and then, uh, you know, nobody hired him. And then he came back a second year, and he won 10 games again. And then everyone went, I guess this guy can coach. And, of course, Baylor hired him. And all he did at Baylor was go out and prove that he could coach there as well. And he became the Big 12 Coach of the Year. And Rule is interesting because I do think he's going to go back to the college game. I think there are some really interesting openings already, and people are buzzing about whether he would go to Nebraska or Georgia Tech. But I want to throw something out there. I want to throw out the idea that, you know, the Pac-12 conference, if it really wants to matter nationally, if it wants people to stop laughing at it nationally, one of the things the Pac-12 has to do is win games and get into the playoff. Second thing they have to do is do what USC and UCLA did in their last hiring cycles. You know, USC went out and got Lincoln Riley, stole him from Oklahoma. UCLA outbid Florida and some others for Chip Kelly. So, you know, it may have been that Chip Kelly was like, there's no question I want to go back to the Pac-12. I know the Pac-12. And often you will see coaches who will gravitate towards environments or conferences or geography that they are familiar with from a recruiting standpoint and conferences that they're familiar with from a competition standpoint. You know, essentially they know what they're getting into. But I'm left wondering if the Pac-12 conference – if it really wants to matter, if the 
you know, not the premier programs in the conference, but decent jobs in the conference, like Arizona State currently open, Colorado currently open. Can they get in on this kind of sweepstakes? Can they make Matt Rule consider them seriously? Do they have the money to do it? Do they have the trajectory to do it? Will a coach with options choose the Pac-12 conference? Because if you're going into Nebraska and you're Matt Rule, you're going into a scenario where Nebraska has joined the Big Ten Conference. You've watched Mike Riley, who had success in the Pac-12, uh, fail at Nebraska. you watched Scott Frost, who had success at, uh, you know, in Florida, UCF, fail and get fired. Do you really want to be the next in that uh, progression, or do you look at the Pac-12 and go, hey, that is an easier path to the playoff. That's an easier path to success. I think you have to think about that if you're the agent for Matt Rule because he got fired in the NFL. 11 and 27, as I mentioned. He will surface as a candidate in a lot of different places. It's going to be a buzzy kind of next couple of weeks for Matt Rule because there are even some jobs who probably already have coaches that programs are just going, look, you know, we're happy with our guy, but if we can make a change, if we could get Matt Rule, yeah, we would fire our coach. So there may even be some jobs out there that are not currently open that will open and this will be an interesting time for Rule. But I kind of just feel like, you know, even if it's not Matt Rule, can Arizona State and Colorado make the kind of hire that is splashy or sexy or makes you feel like the middle-of-the-road Mendoza-line Pac-12 conference school can hire good coaches? This has long been a knock on the conference, haven't paid their coaches on the level that other coaches Conferences pay their coaches. Mel Tucker, for example, left Colorado for Michigan State. Damn near doubled his salary. Mike Leach left Washington State for Mississippi State. Damn near doubled his salary and his coaching pool. So the Pac-12's got a lot of narrative to change here, and one of the ways that it can do it is if Arizona State and Colorado decide they're going to pay for a coach and not just go young and go cheap or go with a retread, but actually go out and make a hire that steals a coach that somebody else badly coveted. And I think there are some selling points in this conference. I also think there's some detriment. There's, of course, the narrative out there, like, is it wobbling? Do they have a media rights agreement? Like, I'd want to know that if I was Matt Rule coming through the door. Like, hey, how close to a deal is the Pac-12? Oregon, Washington, everybody staying? Okay, I would want to know that before I signed on at Arizona State or Colorado. And then the other thing is, which of those two jobs is the better job? Like, I debated that today with John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group. This morning, we were on the phone, and we were kind of debating, like, which of those jobs is the better job? On one hand, you know, Arizona State has the proximity to Phoenix, the proximity to Los Angeles and Southern California. It's not like, you know, it's not like it's in Southern California, but you can get there from Phoenix. Like, you've got some population available to you if you are at Arizona State. You also have good weather. You've got some resources. you got a university president, Michael Crow, who appears to give a damn about uh, football especially. And so you have some selling points there. But if you're Colorado, you know, you also have sort of a Washington-like profile in the Pac-12 conference. Colorado is Washington. And Colorado just needs to figure that out. Athletic director Rick George knows he's got history. He knows that, you know, they have – this has been a tentpole program in, in the Big 12 and previously and – you know, competed for a conference championship in the Pac-12 just a few years ago, but really fell off the cliff when Mel Tucker left. And Colorado hasn't done the things that are necessary to matter again. 
Uh, I think there are a lot of people at Colorado who are impatient. Now, I think the Colorado job might be a smidge better than Arizona State just because of expectations. I think if you go to Colorado, I think you're going you're to have a lot more patience. But I think it's an interesting conversation. Would Matt Rule, a guy who really doesn't have a deep connection to the Pacific 12 Conference, would he even consider Arizona State if Arizona State wanted him? I'll keep an eye on that. Uh, Steven, you, you went looking for some odds on Rule. What did you find out? Yeah, so on uh, Bet Online, right now they have Matt Rule's next head coaching job. They have Nebraska as a big favorite, uh, plus 150, which makes a lot of sense, right? You know, you talk about just the stuff that Matt Rule has done. Uh, you would be great in Nebraska. Then Auburn, who still has a coach, right? Brian Harrison Harson is still there. He has not been fired yet, but you talked about this. You see Matt Rule out there. You may have to make a move for that as well. Wisconsin's in at number three. Uh, they just fired their coach, obviously, Jim Leonard. Could be his job, could not. But then it's Arizona State right after that. And then Colorado after Arizona State. Stanford after all them. They still have a coach, David Shaw, as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be really interesting because you look at these Pac-12 teams, and you know we talk about Arizona State and Colorado. When you look at Matt Rule, his first year at Temple, two wins, then went up to six, then to ten. Then we went to Baylor, one win in his first year, then to seven, then to 11. Colorado's not going to have a good team next season. So if Matt Rule comes in, they're going to win zero, one, two games. That goes right along with what he did at Temple and at Baylor. I think that would be a great hire for either Colorado or for Arizona State. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of Matt Rule or Matt Rule's agent. Of course he wants money. But beyond that, he has to win in this next job because he went to the NFL and he failed. And what you don't want is you don't want to uh, follow that up by going somewhere like Nebraska where I think, you know, I'm not sure Nebraska is the program in the Big Ten Conference that it ever was in the Big 12. I just don't think that it matches up well in addition to the geographical challenges which have been well documented. Bill Moose, the former AD at Nebraska, has talked about flying over those time zones and what a predicament that put their programs in. And in football, it's not that bad, but Again, you're competing on a weekly basis in conference play with Ohio State and Michigan and, you know, a rebuilt Wisconsin and Penn State and look out, Illinois got good. And, you know, in yeah, there's some bottom feeders still in this conference, but it's it's not the same as the ride that I think USC and UCLA and Oregon are having right now in the Pac twelve, even Utah, because I think there is a clear path to the playoff once you get an expanded playoff so if i'm matt rule i want success i want money i want job security uh and i want to know that i can get to the playoff because i think you know if you look at his two stops prior as a head coach at temple and then at baylor it wasn't perfect for him uh, but he won he proved that he could recruit the state of texas he proved that he could win at a school that was a basketball school temple and then he also then went to the NFL and he failed miserably, uh, probably failed worse in a lot of ways than Chip Kelly did when he went to the Eagles and then the 49ers, but I think for a different reason. So if I'm Matt Rule, I'm looking out, and as you mentioned those jobs, you say Nebraska and Wisconsin up at the top, Stephen, like those are Big Ten schools, and it's not Ohio State, it's not Michigan, it's not Penn State. I think you're signing on for a little bit of a headache of those two jobs. I actually think Wisconsin is the better job. And I, I think that Nebraska job, for everything that we're starting to learn, and I think we will learn more as the reporters who cover Nebraska on a regular basis start to dig around, and, and like, how do you explain Mike Riley struggling so mightily? And how do you extra- explain Scott Frost struggling? And you look and you go, okay, like, what has happened to Nebraska football? I think 
that they have joined a conference that is a gauntlet. I think they uh, are not as, uh, you know, not, don't, don't, ha- don't, don't exist in a geographical footprint that is, that is uh, advantageous for recruiting. And I think they have a lot of disadvantages as, you know, the, as they go to the Big Ten Conference. And, you know, they're no longer getting into Texas the way they got into Texas because they're not playing regular football games in Texas. So I look at Wisconsin. I look at uh, Nebraska. I actually think the Georgia Tech job is, is more interesting than both of those if I'm him. But I, I think he's a guy who wants to recruit the state of Texas. Is Arizona State close enough? To, for him to recruit the state of Texas, we'll find out. But I think it would be the kind of splashy hire that if the Pac-12 could get in on that, uh, it, it, it's a sign of life, right? It's a sign of vibrance in the same way that when Lincoln Riley came to USC, we all kind of, I, I rolled my eyes and I said, oh, look at all the hoopla, look at all this. But, you know, down deep, I know that was good for the entire conference. Chip Kelly going to UCLA, not picking the SEC or the ACC or anywhere else, was good for the conference. So it would be really good for the conference for Arizona State and Colorado to make good hires with established coaches and, damn it, pay those guys. Yeah, and, and to go with that point, too, the other team that's one of the favorites is Auburn. Like, you go to Auburn, yeah. the expectations are to be really good all the time, but you're always playing second fiddle to Alabama and all these other SEC schools. So if you're going to Arizona State or Colorado, the expectations aren't going to be super high for those first couple of years. They're willing to give you a shot, and that's exactly what happened at Temple and at Baylor those expectations weren't high, and he definitely, you know, fulfilled his his job by year two. They got him on the right track, and then they were really good after that. So, yeah, for me, those top three schools don't seem a great spot. But Arizona State, Colorado, honestly, those seem like great spots for him because there's not going to be that expectations to be good year one. Yeah, and here's a guy who grew up in New York City and played linebacker at, at Penn State. Who's a walk on there? Played for Joe Paterno. And then, you know, in his early coaching career, it was all on the eastern part of the United States. He was at Buffalo. He was at Albright. He was at Penn State as a volunteer assistant. And all of a sudden, in 2001, he shows up at UCLA. So it's not like the Pac-12 is totally foreign to him. But it's one season that he spent in the Pac-12. I'd be really curious to see if he would even look at Arizona State and Colorado. I think it's going to be an interesting study. Coming up, we're going to talk about the Beavers, the Ducks, the Pac-12 Conference, how many contenders are truly left? UCLA made a statement on Saturday. How many contenders are left in this conference, really? We'll talk about it next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Contenders left in the Pac-12. How many? USC, 6-0, ranked 7th in the AP poll. UCLA, 6-0, ranked 11th in the AP poll. Oregon, 5-1, only lost to Georgia, ranked 12th in the poll. Utah, pretty bad loss to UCLA over the weekend. Fell to number 20, now ranked 4-2. And by the way, I thought Utah, you know, maybe some of it is they were playing on the road. But... I, Utah, to me, when you lined them up next to UCLA, Utah looked like they had to play almost perfect to win that game. And I felt like offensively, they had Cam Rising at quarterback, who still looks a little off to me. He's got his tight end. 
but they don't feel to me like they have a guy who can take the ball and go 70 yards for a touchdown. And anybody who watched that game knows UCLA has multiple guys that can go 70 for a touchdown. Dorian Thompson-Robinson playing really well at quarterback. He's not making any mistakes, no big ones, uh, not with the game on the line anyway. He looks really good. And, and Dorian Thompson-Robinson, though, isn't the best improvement that I see at UCLA. The defense looks really good. Like, they have locked something down defensively that they haven't had in a while. And so it's interesting to kind of watch that and see what Bill McGovern, the defensive coordinator, the new coordinator, is doing and to kind of look at the linebacker play. And I think the UCLA-Oregon game in two weeks is now shaping up to be the game of the season. Uh, the other game of the season is coming up this weekend as USC goes to Utah. Now, Utah's favored at home at Rice-Eccles Stadium on Saturday. But how many contenders, true contenders, remain in the Pac-12? USC, UCLA, Oregon, Utah. Are you saying there's four? Or is it three? Is it USC, UCLA, and Oregon? Is Utah out of this thing? I'm not ready to count them out yet because they are hosting USC, and I'm leaning towards picking Utah at home against USC on Saturday. And if Utah beats USC, it leaves the UCLA-Oregon game as kind of the championship game before the championship game. The winner of that game is going to spin out of, uh, you know, spin out of that weekend undefeated in conference play and having the inside track on getting to Las Vegas as one of the top two teams in the conference. So how many contenders are left in your mind? There's no wrong answers here. 503-417-7575. Stephen, how many contenders are left? Yeah, I think it's four. I think it's those four in USC, Oregon, UCLA, and I'm still going to count Utah in there uh, with the one loss. But if you have two losses right now, I think you're pretty much done right now. If you look at the teams that do, Washington State, Oregon State, Washington loses again. I can't see them getting to the Pac-12 title game with these top four teams still up there with one or zero losses. So I think it's those four, and I'm with you. I'm not willing to count out Utah yet. You know, We were texting during the game, like, this Utah team did seem like something was off, right? And you were saying that, Judah was saying it last week, that there's something off with this Utah team, and it kind of looked that way against UCLA. But in fairness, it's on the road, right? So they get USC at home, see what that turns out to be. But I do think, you know, I think right now it's – I still think USC and Oregon right now, I think they're the top two teams with UCLA right after that, uh, and then Utah in fourth. But I still think Utah can get to that Pac-12 title game because, like you said, they do face off against USC at home. Yeah, they get USC at home. They go to Oregon later in the year. And if Utah wins both of those games, they're right in this. But So I'm not going to write them off yet. But Oregon, to me, feels like the most complete team. Like, offensively, they've got it. Bo Nix. They've got really good players at running back and receiver. Really like Troy Franklin, Chris Hudson at the wide receiver positions. Bucky Irving's running the ball well. The offensive line's good. Like, you like Oregon's offense. Uh, defensively, uh, I think Oregon's got the fastest defense in the conference. I think Oregon and UCLA probably have the two fastest defenses that I've seen to this point. Um, so I think Oregon, as much as I looked at them early in the year and went, ah, you know, I don't know, Bo Nix, you know, they've answered some questions for me, but they get a huge test against UCLA at home in a week. Meanwhile, um, Utah looks to me like they have to be really good on the offensive side of the ball like they really sort of regressed and it, I felt like late in the second half of this game against UCLA they really started leaning too much on Cam Rising running the ball 
like it was quarterback draw, it was quarterback rollout, it was it was it was Cam it was the Cam Rising show, and I think it's a lot of pressure to put on a guy, especially with a very athletic defense that can fly around. So I think it was it was a bad recipe at UCLA, but I think I think Utah at home on Saturday against USC, I think they might win that game, and all of a sudden, if they do. It's just UCLA and Oregon. Sean, how do you see it? How many contenders left? I say four. Steven says four. Yeah, I, you know, maybe boring radio, but I, I think it's four, too. Uh, I think it's it's the four teams everyone's talking about. And, you know, one thing I'll add is that if you're an Oregon fan or a UCLA fan, bye week this week, I think you're rooting very heavily for USC at Utah because, like Steven said, when, once you get to two losses, it feels like your, your chances are pretty slim. So if you can get Utah that second loss, then it feels like it's a three-headed race and so you want as little teams in this thing as possible as the season keeps coming closer and closer to an end. And I think, uh, you know, if you're an Oregon fan, you really want USC because that just kind of eliminates the Utes. But I agree, Utah, it's hard to, it's hard to cross them out. They're going to be at home. Something feels a little bit off with them. But, you know, last year something felt off with them around this time too. And then you look at what they became at the end of the year. Yeah, I think, look, there's a lot of ball to play here, but there's a definite separation and I don't blame people who say there's only three contenders right now because Utah didn't look like a team that could go and, you know, beat USC, could win at Oregon, could, you know, get to the conference title game, win that kind of game. Like, they, they just didn't look like that kind of team on Saturday. And so, but I would caution people, like, you know, look around this conference. It is damn hard to win on the road in this conference. And I think you look at the teams that are winning on the road – and I even think that's why Oregon State's win at Stanford. Like, I heard some people say, oh, it was lucky. Oh, you know, it's Stanford. They're terrible. No, I think anytime you go on the road, I don't care if you're going to Colorado, you go on the road in this conference and you come back with a W, that's, that's mission accomplished. That's big because I think it's incredibly difficult to win on the road in this conference as we're going to find out because I, I think this is what's going to happen. I think USC – is going to go to Utah on Saturday. I think Utah is going to win that game. But I, I don't think it's going to eliminate USC. I just think we're going to, we're going to see some cannibalization there. Then I think uh, right now I lean towards Oregon over UCLA because the game's at Autzen Stadium. But Oregon's got to play Utah later in the year. And, you know, I look at UCLA and I'm going, okay, if you're UCLA, after you play Oregon, you know, you have this little run that is kind of a three-week you know, it's not a vacation, but it's Stanford, Arizona State, Arizona. Then it's USC. And, you know, it would be like the most Pac-12 thing ever for Utah to beat USC, for Oregon to beat UCLA, and then for UCLA to beat USC. And now we got a conundrum at the end of the year going, we don't have anybody in this conference except maybe Oregon who emerges as a uh, a candidate for the, for the uh, playoff and – and I don't think this is fair, but I think the, the selection committee is going to have a difficult time getting past that week one 49-3 blowout in Atlanta because Oregon, you know, in, the committee is going to go, well, we've seen Oregon against, you know, one of the four best teams in the country. And I'm not sure they're going to want to see that again. So it, here's one thing that I predict that is going to happen here in the next couple of few weeks, especially if Oregon should beat UCLA. I think Oregon needs to do what it does best away from the football field and start to change the narrative about this season. I think they need to talk about how much different they are as a team. I think they need to talk about the growth they've made from week one. 
because the selection committee, those are not robots, okay? They're being instructed to pick the four best teams, and they're given the uh, opportunity and the ability to account for uh, a team changing over time, as we saw Ohio State a couple few years ago. Like, the, the Ohio State team just started playing great football down the stretch, and all of a sudden everybody was like, that's the best team. Forget what they did early in the year. That's the new best team. Oregon needs that narrative behind them. What has changed? What is different? Who's healthy that wasn't there before? What is Bo Nix now that he wasn't in week one? How much better is the offensive line? We want another shot. We think we deserve to be in this conversation. Those things need to happen because I keep hearing people say, that a one-loss UCLA team that has a loss to Oregon next week, two Saturdays from now, would have a better shot at the playoff than a one-loss Oregon team that lost to Georgia in week one because the week one debacle was so lopsided that people cannot forget it. And I don't think that's right. Like, you would literally be saying that the same team you can't consider because they lost in week one uh, it's okay for UCLA to lose to that team. They're still worthy. Like, you know, to me that doesn't logically make sense. So if I'm Oregon, I need to shift the narrative and shift the story here. This team's improved. This team is better. This team is different. And I'll be curious to see if Oregon starts talking that way should it beat UCLA in two weeks. That's why, you know, this Georgia thing, the week one, it was the it was just such an anomaly for what the season has became for Oregon. And, you know, kind of as a Duck fan, I just wish they had a cupcake week one. Because, again, you know, if you think about USC's season so far and Oregon's season so far, what's the big difference between their seasons besides the fact that USC gets to play Rice week one and Oregon gets to play Georgia week one? Other than that, they've played pretty similar opponents and handled them you know pretty similarly in my opinion I would argue Oregon's been even more impressive than USC and yet you look around the country nationally USC's taken a lot more seriously than Oregon right now Caleb Williams is he has the second best Heisman odds Bo Nix is nowhere to be seen and I think Georgia would have done the same thing to teams like USC and UCLA so you know part of me just kind of wishes that Oregon had an easy week one opponent because I don't think it's really helping them right now and to Sean's point we talked about the offense of USC averaging 462 yards a game the Ducks are averaging 512 that's 50 more yards than USC per game on the season so it's not like that the USC offense is that much better than the Ducks if better at all it's yeah. not. I think Oregon's offense is better. I think Oregon has the best offense in the conference. And Chip Kelly has the best scheme, and he has the most experienced quarterback in Dorian Thompson-Robinson. There's not a fifth-year starter anywhere in the conference. First time this has ever happened. Uh, but I think Oregon's got the best offense. But the narrative, and you're right, Sean, I think what's going to happen, and you're gonna, I'll ask Rob Mullins, the Oregon AD, about this the next time we have him on. I think you're going to see with the expanded playoff, uh, you're going to see teams go, we don't want to play those games. Like, there's no point in playing those games. They, they shouldn't have played that game. Because the only way that game benefits you is if you win it. And it hurts you if you lose it, and it hurts you bad if you lose it the way Oregon lost. Because people can't forget seeing, it's the first thing everybody saw. First impression, right? Never second chance to make a first impression. But I've seen teams recover in basketball and football by selling the narrative that, hey, the point of a season is you're supposed to get better every week. You're supposed to improve. I think if Oregon beats UCLA, Oregon's PR machine, and they've got one, is going to come out firing on all cylinders going, we're a different team. Look at Bo Nix. Look at what he's done since week two. Look at the growth. Look at this team. Emerging stars. Troy Franklin, Chris Hudson. Look at the defense. It's found its footing. Uh, This was just a team playing in week one under a new first-year coach. Again, I'm selling the narrative here. That 
that needed a game, and man, it was unfortunate that they played Georgia and not, you know, Georgia Southern on that on that weekend. And yeah, and you're right. If Oregon had played a cupcake in Week One, they'd be undefeated right now, and they'd be ranked fifth. You know, and and people would be going, "Oh, it's Oregon! Look out!" And it would be Bo Nix for Heisman as well. So keep an eye on that. I don't think the door is closed on Oregon, but I think it's kind of silly for you know. John Wilner said that today to me. He said, "You know, one loss to UCLA, but loses to Oregon, probably still in the playoff picture." And I'm like, "Hold on, man. What if one loss Oregon is it there at the end of the road?" He says, "Nah, the Georgia game." And I go, "But you're using one loss Oregon to validate one loss UCLA. You can't do. You can't have both ways. It doesn't the logic of it doesn't hold up?" I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Having a lot of fun writing at johnconzano.com. If you uh, are subscribed, you know that. If you aren't, grab a free subscription or a paid subscription, whatever works for you, or gift subscription for somebody else. If you're looking to uh, give your dad or somebody else a gift, you can do that at johnconzano.com. But I wrote over the weekend a few things I want to talk about here. I'll take your phone calls as well. You want to talk about Oregon UCLA? Uh, welcome uh, to uh, take those calls at 503-417-7575. But... Uh, I wrote about Chip Kelly over the weekend. It's interesting. You know, he wins the game against Utah. It's clear that the Bruins have it cooking. And Dorian Thompson-Robinson's a handful in his present form. Two years ago, erratic, would make mistakes. He was a guy who would, uh, you know, make great play, then make a bad play. He's not doing that anymore. He's mo- mostly making great plays. And he's running that offense well. He knows it. You can tell he knows it. He's comfortable. You can tell. But I think the defense at UCLA is the big difference. And... I think it's going to be really interesting to see Oregon's offense against UCLA's defense and then Dorian Thompson-Robinson against Oregon's defense. I think um, both these teams being on a bye feels a little bit like a Super Bowl. And again, Chip Kelly, all those years ago, told us that every week was a Super Bowl. He did. He said every week is a Super Bowl. And in the end, you know, even there there was a Civil War game where he took a lot of grief because he said it was just like any other game, every game's big, whatever. And, and I can remember him uh, coming on and coming out and having to talk about you know that game and explain to people that what he really meant was, well, I'll let him speak. In the past, you said every game is the Super Bowl for you guys, but is this one different? Is it more important than than more important than the Super Bowl? I don't think so. Is it, is it different than, than any other game? It's a Super Bowl. Every game's a Super Bowl for us. So I don't know how we can get bigger than that. That's why when people say we diminish it, we're not diminishing. It's the biggest game we're ever going to play. So it's the biggest game ever. Ever. Chip Kelly, biggest game ever come, coming up in two weeks. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. Steve's in Lake Oswego. Steve, welcome to the program. Hi, John. Love your show. Love your articles. You're awesome. And I've uh, been reading you since I was in the Bay Area days, but... I wanted to call you back. Uh, I called you on Friday because um, you weren't giving my Bruins any respect. So and I saw the article this morning uh, that you wrote. Uh, you showed respect. Um, I've already, I have a lot of Oregon friends, if you can imagine, and they're already telling me that we won't score 20 points on them and that uh, Thompson's overrated and, you know, typical Oregon fans, right, um, uh, Homer fans. But I want you to know that you have to pick Oregon because I don't want you to jinx the Bruins. Mm. You have to pick the Bruins, so pick, pick Oregon. Um, and also I want you to understand, that um, 
you know, we talk about uh, these great defenses, right? When we played Washington, they were the number two rated defense, scored 40 points on them. Uh, uh, Utah was the number one defense, only giving up 298 yards a game. We had over 500 yards, and we probably could have scored 50 or 60. They were never going to stop us. Uh, and if you think Oregon's going to stop us, you're nuts. There's no way. Uh, and, and, and what you're forgetting is a little running back called Char- Charbonnet, who ran for yeah. 194 yards. The man is awesome. And I can't wait to see him run through Oregon's uh, defense. And I'm telling you right now ahead of time, the Bruins are going to win that game 38-35. to 35. Woo! There he is. Steven Lake Oswego calling his shot. i got to give the Bruins respect because they earned it. Can't ignore that. You know, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting to give USC the respect. Like, if they go into Utah at Rice-Eccles Stadium and they win that game, I'll, I'll, give them, I'll give them the respect they deserve. But to me, we're going to find out a lot about UCLA, Oregon, I think, by watching this weekend's games. Like, every week we learn a little more, right? We get to see everybody play everybody else. Watching US, US, Utah play USC is going to be interesting to me because I have a sense of how USC matches up. And I have a right now. If you make me pick, I think UCLA would beat USC head to head if they played this weekend. I think that UCLA is just playing better football right now, and I think Chip Kelly, he's just got this feel about him right now that he's figured something out. Guys, you feel that? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I I can't go against you, right? Like you know, I feel like USC is going to regress just a tiny bit. Um, I know I they're a lot better than I thought they were coming into the season, but yeah, I think right now the momentum that UCLA has, that defense has been really good all season long, and they really dominated uh, Washington in that first half and dominated Utah, you know, for a lot of that game. I think they could handle USC's offense a little bit. I think I think you're right. I think I'd pick UCLA as well. I need I need to see it. Though. I think. Yeah. The one thing I don't know about UCLA yet is that we haven't seen it away from home. And yeah. Washington, a couple weeks ago, we thought Washington was like the best team in this conference. Mm-hmm. And then they went away from home to a good team, and they got smacked. And now we're not talking about them anymore. So I want to see UCLA go to Autzen and see what they can do in Autzen. Because, again, these home games are worth so many points. Like, I think it's literally a seven-point swing in the spread, depending on where the game is. So Oregon's probably yeah. going to be favored. They would be underdogs if they went to UCLA. So... I think it's like 24-game winning streak in Autzen Stadium. The place is going to be rocking, and I want to see how UCLA performs in that environment before I, I fully crown them. The better coaching staff, the more proven, experienced coaching staff is on UCLA's side in this one. Like, I think Dan Lanning would acknowledge Chip Kelly's been coaching longer than he has. And I wonder about the bye week and Chip Kelly's staff being more experienced and having the extra prep time against Dan Lanning's staff. You have the home field for Oregon, but you got the extra prep time, and I actually think that prep time probably benefits the coaching staff that's got a little more time on their hands, and it makes me a little nervous for Oregon, but I would go further. I think that the home field is worth more than seven points in this conference. I think it's more, it's closer to nine or ten points. I think we're seeing those kinds of results, and that's why I thought that Oregon State's win on Saturday, everybody you know, waving that off is nothing. I think it was important to go there and get that W. Like, a lot of people turned that game off at halftime, and they missed Treshawn's, uh, you know, reception, and, you know, oh, it was lucky. I heard all this stuff. But, you know, you know, you look at what Goldbrinson did, on, you know, earlier in the game. In the fourth quarter, he throws a beautiful 21-yard touchdown pass in the left corner to Tyjon Lindsay that was just beautiful. Great throw, great catch. Then you got Damian Martinez who runs for a long touchdown. And then you have, you know, the Treshawn Harrison reception that wins the game. And Mike Parker makes the great call and all that. 
Like, let's not call it luck. Let's just say Oregon State, for whatever reason, woke up in the fourth quarter. Stanford suddenly regressed to playing the kind of football that they had played all year long, making a bunch of mistakes, and the better team took advantage of that. Now, I have questions about what we saw in the first three quarters from Oregon State. It was pretty anemic, boring, pedestrian. Don't like Jonathan Smith doing some of the squirrely stuff that he occasionally does when you know during games. I think you know it's the, it equates to a turnover when you try to do an onside kick and you don't get it. So I think there were some weird things that happened in that game. But I got to give Oregon State credit; they won the damn game, and they figured out how to win the game, and and good for them. And I, I think it was Silas Bolden who made the catch, not uh, not Lindsey. So Bolden makes that you know catch in the fourth quarter, gets a foot down, beautiful catch. And then comes Treshawn Harrison later, and, you know, I think Oregon State figured something out with the zone run game. I thought, uh, by the way, did you guys watch the second half of that game, or did you turn it off? I watched. I was watching it. Um, yeah. I, I, had a, I had a problem with uh, some of the announcing. The announcing yes. was, oh, was no, weird. Oh, no, I love yes. that. That was my favorite part about the no, game. No, it was terrible. I thought it was bad. I thought they were hilarious. I thought <laughs> for the 8 o'clock kickoff, I just thought they <laughs> – they didn't take it too seriously. I thought those two were hilarious. It was Robert Griffin the uh, third, Mark Jones, and Mark Jones. Two goofballs, but I and, liked it. It was like dad jokes, man. Like you know, it was you know, Beaver believer, Beaver favor. It was you know, come on. Yeah, but, a lot of a lot of Beaver jokes is what I felt like it was, I and then roll it. like rolling trees, yeah, stuff like that. An obituary for the ankles, I heard at one point. Yeah, when he started talking about, you know, Oregon State did not have a long snapper, and that's why they couldn't kick the extra points. And, you know, and RG3 says, you know, you never really think about a long snapper or a lawyer until you need one. Like, you know, it was was mildly amusing, but also ridiculous at the same time. Like, I thought it was distracting, but I I get it. Like, I could be won over if you tell me that, you know, that made – a pretty boring third quarter palatable. What, what did you take away from uh, Gil Branson's performance? Because, you know, Chance Nolan still is undecided if he's going to be able to play. He's got to practice. Jonathan Smith talked about that at the presser today. Uh, you know, because he was solid in some places, but he also wasn't, you know, didn't show any type of mobility. I thought he was yeah. kind of stuck in the pocket. Do you think the Beavers are better with Gil Branson or have more of a future with him? Or is it going to go back to Chance Nolan when he's healthy? It felt to me like the playbook was pretty limited in the first half. Like they were, they had dumbed it down. That they were keeping it simple. He doesn't have the mobility. I think it's a big detriment to his credit. I thought Goldbrunson came in and managed the situation and didn't throw any interceptions. It was you know after throwing eight in the last two weeks, like you needed that. But I kind of feel like if Chance Nolan and it appears that it's a concussion that he was out with, if Chance Nolan can come back, I. I don't think you hand the keys yet to Gold Branson. I don't think you give it all the way to him, especially against a Washington State front seven that is very mobile uh, and very good. And so I think, you know, if you're Oregon State, you got Washington State at home, you got Colorado at home. There is at least one win there. If you can get two, you're looking at an eight or nine win season. If you can get one, you're probably looking at seven. So I think this is a big week for them with Washington State. But I think if Chance Nolan can go, we may see him. I, I don't think they're ready to hand the entire thing to Goldbranson yet. That's just my hunch. Our big splash is coming up. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game.
Coming up, we'll do our big splash. One thing you need to know. It's a doozy as well. Uh, we haven't talked about it at all. Uh, Charlie is in Vancouver and is holding. Charlie wants to talk Pac-12. Go ahead, Charlie. John, when you talked about the difference in a home field advantage can have in the Pac-12 being more like 9 or 10 points instead of a touchdown, it totally made me think of just the thought I've had for the last few years about how bad the officiating is if you're a road team in the Pac-12 for things like holding, pass interference, you know, the things that they can't review and stuff like that where they either keep it closer for a home team that didn't deserve to be there, um, maybe not decide the game. It just seems like it always, always happens. I'm not a, a rooter for any team. It just frustrates me so bad how bad the officiating is on the 50-50 type calls, I guess you call you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. As far as football can be. Yeah. I'll go even further than that. I think there's another element in play in the Pac-12. And I think it's been documented. If you if you read my writing over the years, I think you know there have been some questions about officiating that have come back to the idea that when Larry Scott was in charge of this conference and Woody Dixon was the director and supervisor of football, you had two guys who didn't know football. Like Larry Scott was a Harvard-educated tennis player. And Woody Dixon had never played football, didn't know football. He was the supervisor of football. Now they have Merton Hanks in that role who knows football. Like, that makes sense to me. But you had Woody Dixon on the phone overruling the replay command center. You had Tony Corrente, the head of officiating in the conference, who quit midseason because he said he was tired of hearing from Larry Scott and Woody Dixon and having those guys in his ear and not supporting his officials. Like, it was evident that the Pac-12 conference... You know, they weren't, they weren't uh, gaming the games. But I think they were putting some pressure on the officials to keep the perennial powers, USC, Washington, Oregon in particular, to keep them moving towards the playoff because getting to the playoff was a huge windfall for the conference. So I think it was kind of like the NBA when the officials are told, hey, you know, we make a lot more money if we get an extra game in this playoff series. And all of a sudden you see a game called a little differently. I'm not saying that they were gaming it or cheating, or, but, you know, it just felt to me that they were steering some of the major brands toward the playoff. And let's just imagine that you are not one of those three schools. So you're one of the other nine, and you're playing a road game at one of those three schools. You're on the road. You're in a hostile environment. And you have kind of the underlying current that Washington State especially has complained about over the years, that they can't get a fair shake when they play Oregon, USC, or Washington because the conference, you know, wants, uh, you know, wants one of those brands and believes one of those brands can get to the title game. This brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know. The one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, Oregon became the latest state to allow high school athletes to profit off name, image, and likeness. I'm talking about high school athletes. The OSAA, the Oregon School Activities Association, voted today to approve the changes to its handbook that come with some stipulation. Among them... Athletes uh, can have name, image, likeness, endorsement deals. They can't receive deals from anyone connected to a high school. They must disclose those deals 
but 20 states have now crafted rules and legislation that allow high school athletes to benefit from their name image likeness. Uh, Scorebook Live had the story. They broke it. Uh, basically, what other states are trying to do, the state of Oregon jumping on board. They first approved the NIL change in September, but, uh, you know, we're looking around the country. LeBron James kid, Bronny James, uh, has his NIL valuation in high school athletics at about $7 million. Jared McCain signed a deal with Champ Sports. He's from California. The, and and uh, you got uh, you got three basketball players uh, at Sierra Canyon, uh, including Bronny James uh, and uh, Juju Watkins, who is also at Sierra Canyon, who have these big deals. So the state of Oregon, athletes in the state of Oregon, now can have an NIL deal. How big a deal is this, guys? Uh, I mean, this is the way it's going, right? And, you know, when the NIL deal came through to college sports, that's what was going to happen. It was going to trickle down to high school sports. And, you know, I've always kind of been the advocate of not necessarily no pay, no paying the players that are playing in college sports because I understand that they deserve some. And the NIL deal was great for that reason. But they already get a lot of perks, a lot of benefits as is. And this is just going to be, you know, a slippery slope. And so I think it's just going to continue going this way. And now high schoolers are going to be, you know, treated like professionals and trying to be recruited to different places. So I think it's a slippery slope. But at the same time, I expected this to happen at some point. And so I'm glad it's I'm glad it's here now because now we're just going to see if it works or not. Yeah, I think yeah. it's hard to uh, argue against this move. However, I do wonder, you know, how many kids will be impacted by this? How many kids can land NIL deals? Like, is it just the, you know, the Peyton Pritchards of the world here in Oregon? You know, like the, the once-in-a-decade type players that come through here? Or do you think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be able to uh, to make some money here? I think at face value, we kind of go, hey, kids in the state of Oregon, we're not looking like LeBron James' kid doesn't live here, so what's the, what's the uh, harm? Let the kids have some walking-around money. But my concern is it's not just Oregon. It's all the other states. Like, we're already worried about, you know, boosters steering athletes towards colleges. If you open the gates on boosters to, uh, to reach out to high school kids on the table, monetizing endorsement deals, you know, if, if Nike wants to steer the best high school kids in the country to the University of Oregon, the floodgates are beginning to open and allow that. So... I'm not saying that, you know, they would entice, but how do you ignore that if you are a college, if you're going, hey, we don't want boosters involved in this stuff. And, oh, by the way, a bunch of high schools are going to allow, a bunch of states are going to allow high school kids to to benefit from NIL money. Yeah, like Bronny just yeah. got a deal with Nike, an NIL deal with Nike. Yeah, it's just, I get it. It's the way we're going, but it comes with a lot of tentacles, doesn't it? Coming up, Punch and Audio, we have the best sound from all around. Anna will pop in the studio. we got a guest who wants to talk sports cards on this show it's a sports radio show why not we'll do that later this hour in the four o'clock hour as well leave it right here b f f t from the pac west center in downtown portland presented by high caliber millwrights here's john canzano with a bald-faced truth Man, it was a great sports weekend with Major League Baseball playoffs, college football, the NFL. Got some preseason action going on in the NBA. Steven, are you worried about the Blazers? 
Preseason? Well, I mean, not because of the preseason games. I was worried about the Blazers coming into the season, so it's kind of <laughs> solidified my uh, my questions. Yeah. You, you, you weren't worried more after the preseason. No, no, I'm not worried more. I'm still uh, very worried, though. You're still worried. You're not... I'm not more concerned than I was. I'm just concerned. That's a perfect way to put it, yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm hopeful. Like, look, I, I would love to be wronger than wrong about the Blazers. See them, like, as the five seed. But I kind of feel like their upside is, do they get, you know, do they just make the playoffs and then get blasted out of the first round as one of the low seeds? Or maybe they're in the play-in game or, or whatever, but... I would love to be wrong, is what I'm saying. Me as well. Yeah, I think best case scenario is they're about the eight seed. So, uh, yeah, I think if they get anything higher than that, it'd be great. I have so much to talk about in this segment. We're going to jam it all in. If you are just waking up for a co- from a coma, we got you covered. This is Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, the Mariners found themselves down 8-1 to one over the weekend in Game 2 of their wildcard series against the Blue Jays. They came rumbling back. Tie the game, 9-9. Here's the call. Punch it. Crawford to center field, not deep. Sprinting in Springer, and Bichette and Springer collide. The ball falls, and everybody's going to score. The Mariners have tied the game, and now Bichette and Springer are laid out in the outfield. Laid out in the outfield, the Mariners eventually took a 10-9 lead. The go-ahead run on its second, and Cal Raleigh with two outs. And that will bring up Adam Frazier, who has two hits on the day. He's also lined out to Bichette at short. Down the lead. Here's the pitch of the way. Swinging a line drive in the right field. Down the line and toward the corner. A base hit. Cal being waved around third. He'll score. Frazier in its second with a two-out RBI double. Claps his hands. And the Mariners, for the first time in the ball game, have a 10-9 miraculous lead here in the top of the ninth inning. Holy smokes. Not quite Dave Niehaus, and I don't believe it, but it was difficult to believe they took their first lead in the top of the ninth. Here's the final call of the game as the Mariners eliminate the Blue Jays, sweep the wild card two zip. Punch it. The Blue Jays are down to their final out. Mariners one out away from an unbelievable win here in Toronto. They need one more out. Lead 10-9. Tying run at first. Swing and a fly ball. Center field coming in. Julio. He makes the catch and the ball game is over. The Mariners win the wild card series. They're going to Houston to take on the Astros in one of the most incredible, miraculous finishes and comebacks we have ever seen. The Mariners celebrate with a two-game sweep over the Blue Jays here in Toronto. They advance to the division series against the Houston Astros. Game one tomorrow, 12:37, first pitch for the Mariners. On Wednesday's show, we have Ryan Divish, the beat reporter for the Mariners who covers them for the Seattle Times. He's going to join us between game one and game two on Wednesday. Be here for it. And, John, if you want to get up to the game three in Seattle, it's going to cost a pretty penny. 
Uh, right now, the average, the get-in price on StubHub, $317 to get into the stadium on Game 3. Compare that to Game 1 in Houston, $35. So uh, you can see the excitement up in Seattle. Fly to Houston, buy the $35 ticket. It'd probably save you money. <laughs> there you go. You'd be, uh, you'd be in Houston, though. In the <laughs> that, end. that is true. That's a downfall. So there's that. Oregon State was at Stanford in the fourth quarter, facing what looked like a sure loss. Mike Parker, Beaver, Beavers Radio Network, uh, from Learfield, with the call. Gulbrunson to Treshawn Harrison. Lights out Stanford. Punch it. Ben takes the shotgun snap. Gulbrunson throws down the right sideline. And over the shoulder, catch by Harrison. 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown Beavers! Treshawn Harrison, the catch. 13 seconds to play. The Beavers take the lead. Beavers take the lead. Treshawn Harrison literally took the ball off the helmet of the, of the Stanford defender. Stanford did a lot wrong in the fourth quarter, but Oregon State just plain got it done. Jonathan Smith on the post game, punch it. Well, obviously uh, you win the game in the fourth quarter. Um, however you play in the first three, three and a half quarters, you're still around it. And these guys kept on battling. Really, you know, just proud of a few guys. Daniel Martinez had some huge carries. I thought Ben did some good things for his first start. But he did some good things. Uh, Smith talking again today. A little better sound here. Talked about, you know, what, was he lucky? I don't think he was lucky. Well, I mean, you're, you're always concerned on, you know, again, finding ways we got to be able to play better. And there was a lot that we didn't do well in the game um, that it's going to cost us games. We were fortunate to find a way to, to win the game at the end. And, again, you're, that's what you're trying to do. You, go, you play a game and try to win it, and we did. But throughout the game, there's a lot that we got to clean up. You know what strikes me about Jonathan Smith? And it struck me on the sideline after the game. I watched him on the field. Just even killed. Not too high, not too low. We'll talk about that with Smith on Wednesday when he joins us. He's on Wednesday's show. Meanwhile, the Oregon Ducks getting it done. Uh, and Dan Lanning says, look, it was a complete game. But here's Chris Hudson uh, with a 42-yard catch here it is throwing off play action deep shot and that's caught inside the five it'll be down short of the goal line seam route Bo Nix plants his foot in the, in the ground Chris Hudson runs right past the Arizona defense laying out look at his eyes right to the top right to the top Dan Landing liked the performance hey, uh, you know really proud of our team and the way they perform tonight I've been looking for a complete game certainly a lot of things that we can get uh, better at, but I think it's always hard to go on the road, uh, compete in this conference. We, we talked about being battle-tested this game, you know, coming somewhere and performing, and I thought our guys came and they performed, you know, a complete game. Um, certainly some moments, like I said, that we went back, um, but overall our team's getting better, and I think it's, it's uh, seen there. That's, you know, Coach Fish has done a great job with that team, getting them better and better, um, and uh, excited to get ready for our next opponent, UCLA. Yeah, they got a bye week. Beavers get a uh, get a game this week, but Oregon gets a bye week, and UCLA gets a bye week. It's like a Super Bowl, as those two teams will meet UCLA and Oregon at Autzen Stadium on October 22nd. The Bruins, they got it going with D Dorian Thompson Robinson. He had a rushing touchdown and a passing touchdown in this sequence. And Robinson in the backfield, three receivers in the pattern here for the Bruins. Robinson takes the snap and keeps it out on the left-hand side. Dorian Thompson-Robinson to the end zone. That's a touchdown. 
Six yards on the left-hand side. He beat everybody to the pylon. And with 10 seconds to play here the first quarter, UCLA's jumped out in front. Thompson Robinson into shotgun Charbonnet next to him. Loya in motion. They fake the sweep. They roll to the right. They throw to the back of the end zone. Caught. Is he in? Touchdown. Jake Bobo. They snuck him out the backside. It didn't look initially like he got a foot down, but he did. Second foot came down out of bounds, but that's going to be a touchdown. That it, there it was. Touchdown. DTR playing well for UCLA. He is the difference on offense for them. Again, the Bruins get a week off, and then they will go to Oregon on the 22nd. Fun interview after the game-winning kick on Sunday Night Football. If you... Uh, you are a Sunday night football fan. You watched Justin Tucker with the game winner. Here he is talking about it. Punch it. I mean, I love it and I hate it and everything in between. It's, uh, you know, I, I'd be lying to you if I said every time I go out there, I'm not just a little bit nervous. You know, I'm not thinking about, you know, worst case scenario. But it's really important to me and to us to take, you know, those 1.3 seconds between the snap, the hold, and the kick and just focus on the nuts and bolts of what's going to make the kick. And my feelings don't matter. What matters is seeing the ball snapped with 12 o'clock laces from Nick Moore, seeing the ball spotted cleanly from Jordan Stout, his first career game-winning hold. And then uh, from there, I'm just a system kicker. The ball kicks itself at that point. Uh, and all, all we're really thinking about is those things that are going to make the kick. All the feelings and stuff, we can enjoy them after the fact. No feelings involved. We can all learn from that. 1917. Did you know there's such a thing as a system kicker <laughs> he's I did. W- way too humble that's like the best kicker of all time right there yeah and he's also like but i think in his mind like can we not learn from that like he's taking a high pressure kick it's not like if he misses this kick the game goes to overtime like they lose the game if he misses this kick it's so he it's he like a ta- science to it yeah and he takes it and he reduces it it's not a kick it's a snap it's a hold it's the laces it's foot placement the kick takes care of itself like, you know, it's he's reduced it to nothing. And I think psychologically, he's taken a big moment and he's reduced it to little things. I think we can learn from that. Ron Rivera throwing some shade at uh, at quarterback Carson Wentz. What is he thinking here? Punch it. The Giants, you know, they're up to a faster start. The Eagles, the Cowboys. You know, they've kind of all been rebuilding, too, the last couple of years, and it seems like they're farther ahead. Why do you think the teams in the division are farther ahead at this point? Quarterback. I mean, with quarterback, like the Cowboys, for instance, they're, they don't have Dak Prescott this season and still have been able to well, they win. Started with, well, they, well, they started, started with, with Dak, them, but and they built around Dak, and the offense is built around Dak. Um, their backup's a, a guy that is very solid inside of it inside of what they do um, and the truth is that, that this is a quarterback driven league and if you look at the teams that have been able to sustain success they've been able to build it around a specific quarterback throwing some shade at Wentz Philadelphia Jalen Hurts the Giants with Daniel Jones Dallas with uh, Dak Prescott uh, all entered the season with the same starting quarterback is last year. Washington has started six quarterbacks in two-plus seasons under Rivera. His point was they built around the quarterbacks. You know, that was his point. I get what he's saying. Is this a good move by a head coach to basically say it's quarterback? No. Seemed, seemed like a weird comment to me. But, you know, I told you this, John. I bet on the commanders to be fewest wins. I'm feeling good about it. 
Carson Wentz is just, it feels like every team that he goes to, the coach and the GM, they just hate him. Like, it, not only is he bad, but I think he's just so sporadic as a quarterback that it feels like Ron Rivera's already thrown him under the bus since week six. Pretty much done. Anna's popping into the studio next. Uh, so much more ahead. You got the bald-faced truth. I want you here for it. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I know a lot of people, my parents included, were watching the Stanford-Oregon State game late Saturday night and turned it off at halftime and went to bed and then woke up going, what? What happened? Mike Parker uh, with the call on the uh, Oregon State radio network. Ready to go. 25 seconds to play in the game. Down five. Ben takes the shotgun snap. Bill Branson throws down the right sideline. And over the shoulder catch by Harrison. 20, 15, 10, 5. Touchdown, Beavers! Treshawn Harrison, the catch. 13 seconds to play. The Beavers take the lead. They got to go for two here, Mike. Unbelievable catch by Treshawn Harrison. Pulled away from the defender and scores. I, I love the sidekick who comes in and goes, <laughs> they're going to go for two. Enjoy the moment, all right? Enjoy the moment. By the way, they took a knee there. They shouldn't have. They should have ran a play and gone for two, but they ended up taking a knee. Jonathan Smith later said it was a mistake. Anna, you were watching that game. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad that I stayed up and watched that game, and I'm laughing at all the people that I know that did not that either fell asleep or just turned it off and went to bed and didn't think that there was going to be a comeback. Yeah, it was big. Big game-winning TD. Uh, you ever uh, you remember back in the playoffs, in the NBA playoffs, you know, Stephen, when the Miami fans left the arena? I think it was during one of the finals games. Yeah, against they... the Spurs, Ray Allen hit that uh, the three-pointer. Yeah, and the fans... We're trying to get back into the arena, and the ushers and the security staff wouldn't let them back in. Well, it's like we were talking about last week, how the Bronco fans were leaving right as overtime was starting, and the Cardinals fans in baseball were leaving in the ninth inning. It's like, you can't you can't leave. Like, stuff can happen. Stuff happens. I don't it's... think the Bronco fans regret leaving. <laughs> they probably don't. That was a, that was a choice, yeah. <laughs> like, do you guys, when you attend a, a sporting event, or you watch a sporting event, I feel like you're making a commitment to the event. I have a hard time, like, obviously I'm there if I'm covering the event, I'm not leaving, but I have a hard time going, like, if I'm watching a game on TV, I'm invested for a half or three quarters, I kind of have to see it through. I agree with you. I, I want to see it till the end, even if it is a blowout. Like, I want to see if something interesting happens and I know nothing will. I, I, I paid for it. I paid for my entertainment. I, especially I'm away from the kids probably at that point. So, yeah, I'm going to stay as late as I can. <laughs> I like that, too. Uh, I don't know. Like, the last sporting event I was at was Oregon-Stanford, and that was an 8 p.m. game. And so Oregon's up, like, 30 points, and it's the fourth quarter, and it's almost midnight, you know? So I don't off. blame people for leaving after the third quarter. They did shout, and then that place just cleared out. So I, I understand that when it's that kind of circumstance that late at night. Well, uh, Anna, you ever you walk out of a movie ever? I don't think you've ever done that with me. Have you ever no, walked out of the only movie we walked out of was Paranormal because it was too scary for yeah. us. Well, for you. 
for us. For it was scary for you. I did. <laughs> I, I stood in support of you and went, okay, let's go see Couples Retreat instead. We had to like yeah. maneuver a whole way out of that theater, though. It was like, okay, if we both get up abruptly and leave, we're just going to both look like chickens here. Yeah, people so. are going to judge you. Yeah. So I'm going to go first. Like, I'm just going to the bathroom, and then you're going to slip out after me a few minutes. Like I, I told the story last week. I had a girlfriend in college that was at the A's game when they were playing against the Rangers and Nolan Ryan was throwing a no hitter and she left in like the seventh inning and he threw a no hitter. And I was just like, this is not going to work. Like I can tell this is not going to work. Have you guys ever left a movie prematurely? Have you ever walked out of a movie? Uh, I mean, we walked out because it was one of my son's like first movies he ever went to and we couldn't stay there anymore. He was just getting antsy. But uh, besides that, no, I've never walked out. I haven't walked out of a movie, but I've fallen asleep during movies that I wish. I was like, oh, I shouldn't have fallen asleep, but I fell I, asleep. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think like, I'm in the same mindset. Like, if I'm paying for the damn movie, I gotta, I'm gotta, i going to stay at the damn movie. I'm going to watch it to the finish. It's just By out the, of principle. Yeah. It's out of principle, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, I, not that I'm cheap or anything, but, like, I paid for it. Principle, I'm staying. Oh, I'm cheap. I'm cheap. <laughs> Yeah, uh, look, Anna and I, by the way, we found some new shows. We saw the show last night. Oh, so good. So good. We, there's two new binge watches that you got to watch, guys. All right, I'm going to give you your two new watches for this week. If you haven't seen The Old Man, The Old Man on FX is good. Former CIA operative. Jeff Bridges plays the lead role. John Lithgow's in the. It's based on a novel of the same, of the same title, The Old Man. But basically, he's like a CIA operative who is uh is on the run trying to stay alive he's been in hiding forever and and you know now it's you know it's an old kind of storyline but it's a re it's really well done it's really smart and then the other the other show we've been watching is called the bear the bear is uh also it's on hulu but it's an fx production and it's essentially like this chef who has worked at like the finest restaurant in new york city who then has to leave and go run his family's, uh, you know, sandwich shop in in I think it's Chicago or Philadelphia. I can't Chicago, remember. I Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. So he's in Chicago and he's running a sandwich shop, but he's like he's like high caliber cuisine chef. Like and he was working at a, a Michelin rated yeah. restaurant before going and running this, you know, sandwich shop. What makes it good? Uh, the writing's fantastic. Uh, I think the best part about it is that it's the kind of show that it doesn't assume that you're stupid. Yeah. That's the best thing I can say about it. Because I think a lot of shows, the writers just kind of assume that you're not able to catch up. So they throw in a lot of like superfluous dialogue to make sure you get things. And there's nothing that annoys me more than that when I'm watching a show. So this show assumes that you have a brain, assumes that you're paying attention, and that you can connect the docs, dots and then it's it's visually just stunning and but the caveat is that as you're watching it at 9:30 at night you're going to go to the refrigerator and it's gonna make hit you it hungry. like three times because yeah. you're going to do that late night snacking just cuz it'll make you starving yes you're going to put some weight on yeah. watching the bear yeah uh the the other thing about the bear uh, and by the way full disclosure the old man we've only seen one episode but <laughs> hooked i'm in like that's my new show but the bear, we finished the whole first season, and um, it was interesting to me to see that there is a second season coming. So it's been renewed. Mm -hmm. So I was a little worried because I thought maybe the show is too smart, 
that there's a faction of the audience. Let's just let's be real. There's a faction of the public that's not very bright. Oh my god. Okay, there is. Stop. It's not it's nobody listening to this show. I always say the listeners of the show, <laughs> you have to be smart to be to listen to the show. We move fast. But there's a faction of the audience that that it, uh, the general public and the American public that's not very bright. Okay? Right? <laughs> All right? Let's be real. And so I worry when I see a show where every scene is smart and the dialogue is good and I and I and like the scene changes and I go, oh, that was a great scene. And then the next scene comes, it's a great scene. And then the next scene, you know, it's a great scene. Like every scene, there's a lot of conflict in this, in this, the, the bear. It's called the bear, so don't at me. You know it's the bear on, it's on Hulu. It's an FX show. But every single scene is great. You know what I'm talking about, guys? Yeah, yeah, and I, and Steve and I were jokingly pointed at e, at each other uh, when you were talking about people that aren't bright. The but, uh, of the public. Is <laughs> well, we don't listen to the show; we work on the show, so that's that's the difference. No, I'm, you're you're you captive. Don't, you don't have to be smart to work on the show just to listen to it. I actually think I'm the dumbest person on the show. I've said that before. We hire smart people. <laughs> Eh, not, not not myself. Uh, I'm kind of talking myself into the bear. 100% Rotten Tomatoes, 8.5 out of 10 IMDb. Um, but I Why also... do you have to go there? Why do you just trust my recommendation? No, 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 like, no. It's I, not I, enough? I, no, I, your recommendation <laughs> led me to searching it up, and then it even validated even more the fact that it's got these great reviews, and I read the description and everything. Another thing I'm going to point out is that uh, I was recommended the Redeem Team documentary. You know, oh, this is a we saw the trailer for that. Yeah, I wasn't that interested initially, but apparently it's really good. Saw the trailer. The trailer for that has LeBron and Carmelo and a couple other players Coach talking. K. Chris Bosh talking about the the you know they go to Beijing. They're they're trying to because in 2004 in Athens they got beat by Puerto Rico, and they said we're revamping the whole selection thing. And by the way, in Athens in 2004. The whole team was staying on uh, the Queen Mary, the, the yacht. The whole team was staying on a luxury yacht, and they were kind of living it up, okay? And that was in Athens. But they, they stunk on the court. So they come back in Beijing in 08, and the trailer has, you know, Pau Gasol is playing for Spain. Kobe and Pau are teammates with the Lakers. And Kobe tells his teammates, this according to the trailer, like LeBron is saying this, Hey, I'm going to come down. There, I know what they're going to run. Their first play, uh, they're going to set a screen, and I'm going to run through. I'm going to run through Powell. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to knock him on his backside. And they all went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they show the play in the trailer, and Gasol tries to set a screen, and Kobe just knocks him on his ass. And then LeBron was like, "Okay, we're not. We're not friends out here. We're here to win a gold medal." Kobe, you know, he set the tone for that. Yeah, that is a cool scene, definitely for sure. Um, and, you know, that that Redeem team, that game against Spain, that gold medal game was awesome. I mean, and as a Blazer fan, we were all really wanting to watch Rudy Fernandez play in that game because he was coming <laughs> over. He had the dunk over Dwight Howard, which as a Blazer fan, I'll never forget. Like, I was like, oh, this guy's going to be awesome now. But, I mean, that game had so many storylines to it. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be watching that one. A lot of fun. So, Sean, you watched it. Is the whole thing like a tribute to Kobe Bryant and his resolve, or is it way more than that? I have not watched it. I was actually recommended it by uh, Fletcher Johnson, who uh, oh, yeah? I think we all know yeah. here. It was, Fletch, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I uh, I have not watched it yet, but I am planning on it. But that's I was just saying that's on my list, and it should be on other sports fans' list as well. All right. Check out The Bear. Check out The Old Man. And then check out the Martin Short, Steve Martin two-man uh, comedy show on Netflix. <laughs> 
Those two guys, pretty damn funny for two old uh, comedians. All right, leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I want to uh, I want to ask a question here. I noticed I was flipping around watching a bunch of Pac-12 games over the weekend. I noticed some some uh, screwy things that were going on with some cameras, and I got to the bottom of this. Anna, I mentioned this to you uh, over the weekend, but um, there was a Skycam being used on a couple of the Pac-12 network broadcasts. Now, I was told by a little birdie, and I have not reported this anywhere, so keep this between us. I will report this at some point, uh, you know, and write about it. But I was told that Arizona State is funding this Skycam as some kind of passion project that it has inside the campus. They trotted it out for their game against Washington over the weekend. And if you watch the Arizona State-Washington game on the Pac-12 networks, you may have noticed this Skycam that was hovering above, it gave it a weird angle. And I commented to Anna, I said, you know, they must not have any other camera angles. They keep showing that angle. Well, it turns out it, it's some kind of passion project that Arizona State is funding. The Pac-12 is not funding it. The Pac-12 network is not funding it. And apparently uh, they are using Arizona State as the lab on this thing. And... It was a huge hit, according to some people at Arizona State. It was well-received on the broadcast, whatnot. Arizona State's got, what, the Cronkite School of Journalism down there? I believe so. Is that what they got? Yeah. So this is one of the cases where I think Arizona State's trying to do something a little outside the box. Mm -hmm. I fully support this. Like, nobody else in college football is having a school go, hey, we want to put, like, this drone cam as part of the game, the Skycam. And I think if you Google it, you're probably not finding a bunch of info about it, or are you? Uh, this was the ASU versus Huskies Washington game. game. Yeah. So interestingly enough, it's this dude named Ryan Shane with Ryan Shane Pro Fly Studios. And he was traveling from Pittsburgh to Phoenix to be the Skycam operator for that game. I don't know if he's like an independent operator that has lined up like a contract with them or something, but that's his gig. That's his gig. I got to get in touch with that guy. Yeah. Where'd you find him? Uh, you know, yeah. the old Facebook. Oh, you found his Facebook. <laughs> there you go. Good reporting. <laughs> but uh, the uh, bottom line being Arizona State had this drone cam yeah. that was operating during the game. I don't know where they got the idea, but I reached out to the Pac-12 this morning and I said, hey, who's funding this? Like, mm-hmm. where is this coming from? They said... This ain't our thing. This is an Arizona State thing. So I kind of wonder, like, when Oregon catches wind of this, oh, yeah. Oregon's going to have drones all over that stadium, <laughs> you know, flying all over the place. But, like, I, and I reached out to Arizona State. Arizona State confirmed it was their, it's their project. Mm-hmm. They are the lab, they said. Hmm. And I asked if this was Michael Crow because somebody told me it was Arizona State's president, Michael Crow, who was behind this. They said no. It's more of a football project. But I'm kind of wondering if they're going to get game film that would be advantageous. Oh, yeah. Because they're going to have maybe some camera angles that not everybody else has. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It, but does this kind of stuff, would it set the Pac-12 apart? Like if, you know, because the word on Friday night is that the Pac-12 
ended their exclusive negotiating window with ESPN and Fox. And now the media rights are out on the open market. Hmm. So they did not come to an agreement with ESPN and Fox. It's not a big surprise. Bob Thompson, the former uh, retired Fox Sports Network's president, told us that it it was going to be uh, an outside-the-box deal. He said if it was a normal, you know, hey, we're just going to renew the current deal, he said it would have been done early. The fact that it's taken so long means that they're going outside the box. So I'm kind of thinking that means Amazon or Apple hmm. may be a – uh, may get a big chunk of the Pac-12 conference football games. Everybody okay with that, or are you uneasy with Amazon or Apple having, you know, right now there are like 80 games that are split between Fox, ESPN, and the Pac-12 networks. 36 of them are on the Pac-12 network. So are, are you guys okay if Amazon and Apple are taking like half the conference's football games, or do you want them to have them all? Yeah, I'm okay with them taking half of them. I think that's good. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily want them to go all in with all all the games just to start out to be, you know, the quote-unquote guinea pig with that. But, uh, you know, I'm okay with going halvesies on that. I think it would – because I think it does work, and I think it's proven on Thursday Night Football that people will tune in if they want to watch it. So Pac-12 fans will have those have the rights to watch those games when they want to, uh, where some people don't have the have the option to do it right now. The concern for me, and you've mentioned this before, John, with Amazon or Apple is, again, it's the propaganda. You know, college football is a very subjective sport where you kind of need college game day to be at the, the campus or you need just some kind of hype from some national media. And it feels like the Pac-12 is lacking that right now. Like college game day is going to Tennessee for the second time in four weeks or whatever. And I'm just afraid that if... If the Pac-12 sides with Amazon or Apple and gets a little bit, uh, you know, outside the box, that they're going to, you know, the national media is not going to be giving them the attention and therefore they're not going to be getting uh, the respect from the fans. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think you need the glow. And I've talked about this, the glow of ESPN, all that shoulder programming that happens before and after the games and at halftime and all the shows over the weekend and all week long that are hyping the SEC and the ACC. Not because the SEC and the ACC necessarily have the best teams, but because ESPN's in partnership with those two conferences. They hype, 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 hype those players. They hype, 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 hype the teams and the games. And you lose that if you go fully all in with Amazon or Apple. You know, MLS has done it. They've decided, hey, they want the money more than the platform of ESPN. But I'm not sure the Pac-12 is ready to go all the way there. Because I think they fear, you know, distribution was a huge problem with the Pac-12 network. They probably are going, look, do we really want to continue to have a possible distribution and visibility problem by going all the way with a streamer? I, I think they might be a little allergic to that. Um, I think that, you know, like Stephen was saying, the proof of performance is there. I think everybody's been very impressed with what Prime has done on Thursday nights, the picture quality and the coverage and the quality of the content. Um, I think that they just need to figure out how to fly some Amazon drones now in the stadium and drop little packages to everybody <laughs> during the game. That would be the ultimate, like, marketing bonanza. Uh, like, I think I'm okay. Free Prime for a year. I'm okay with the Pac-12 going. <laughs> Hey, our Pac-12 network content is really hard to get, okay? Everyone struggles yeah. to figure out how to get it. Like, you can get it. You can go to Sling or whatever, and, you you know, for about 27 bucks a month, you can get it. Yeah, if you can figure yeah. out the chess match, yeah. sure. You can, yeah, it's a digital obstacle yeah. uh -huh. course. Yeah. But you can get there. But I think the Pac-12 is probably positioned well 
to be able to go, look, you know, people are having distribution issues anyway. Let's take the Pac-12 network content and put it on Amazon or Apple, put the rest on linear television, and ideally you're good. But what happens if Amazon or Apple comes in and says, we'll pay you double what ESPN is going to pay you for the rest? At that point, I think the Pac-12 has got a conundrum because, uh, you know, I, I, again, I'm on record. The glow of ESPN is valuable. But if you're expanding the playoff to 12 teams, does that glow become as necessary? Because you're probably going to get your conference champion in anyway. Mm-hmm. Does that become as important? The PR. See, I, I, I think you're. I, I don't think it does. I think with the expansion, there's going to be spots open, at least one for the Pac-12, and so you don't necessarily need all the pump up from the ESPN uh, train of hype because a lot of times we don't even take ESPN very seriously. Like we talked about that last week as well. So, like, I, I don't think it's as important as you're making it out to be, especially with this expansion coming. I just think that every single week on Saturdays, I flip open my, I flip on the TV and I see Michigan playing some awful opponent, and I see Ohio State playing some awful opponent, and these games aren't even good. But you know, I see Clemson on there, and I think the Pac-12 is lacking that right now. Like, uh, you know, I have to go to great lengths to watch Oregon. Uh, you know, like UCLA, USC, those teams have been on TV, but I feel like every week there's some game that's kind of hidden. I think the Pac-12, like Michigan, is probably a little bit overrated because every single week we get to watch them blow out some awful Big Ten teams. So I think, you know, there is a little bit of a distribution issue, and I, w- I worry if they were to go to Amazon that it would become even worse. Yeah, I'm with Sean on that one. I, th- I still think that ESPN plays a role in amplifying the role of, of the Pac-12 and the teams. Like, how much better would it have been if the whole country was actually awake and watching that Oregon State comeback? Yeah. When it comes to the brand of Oregon State. But that game was on ESPN. It was it just was. eight o'clock. Yeah, it's stuck at eight o'clock when the East Coast is going. Ooh, you know, it's like not even the East Coast. Like people I on was, the West Coast yeah. had fallen asleep. <laughs> you know, and turned it off. Yeah. So, so but are, is ESPN pumping up the Pac-12 now? There's four teams, no. or there's three teams <laughs> in the t- top twelve. Like it's no, would they wouldn't be any higher? No, because it, and the, part of that is that you know ESPN is is in bed with the SEC and the ACC. So when you watch. Keep in, you know, it's an interesting experiment for our for our listeners. When you're watching ESPN, file that away in the back of your head. They have a dog in the fight. They have the SEC and they have the ACC. When they start talking about Heisman candidates, when they start talking about playoff spots, when they start saying here are the best ten teams in America and here's why, they're influencing the AP top twenty-five voters with all of that programming. But keep it in the back of your mind that they have a vested interest with the SEC and the ACC. And see if you notice anything, mm-hmm. because I have, like, you know, they own all these bowl games. In the run-up to all these crappy bowl games, they're telling you how great these games are going to be, <laughs> right? They're selling their event, you know, mm-hmm. production team, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not, it's just not ideal. I don't think people look at them that way. Well, I don't think they, they do it through they that lens, and they just assume that they're a neutral party. No, they're not neutral. They, they, uh, they've got a dog in the fight. I want you to leave it here. We're going to talk about sports cards with a guy who is involved in this in the state scene when it comes to sports cards. Leave it here. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'm 
I'm a baseball card guy, meaning as a kid I collected sports cards uh, and I was into them. And uh, now I continue to pull the sports cards out. My kids are moderately interested. But the other night, uh, the eight-year-old and the six-year-old were listening to this podcast called Wow in the World. Anna, you love the podcast, right? You like yeah. Educational? And fun. All right. They're, they were listening to Wow in the World. And the episode was on Roberto Clemente. And I was I was thrilled. I heard I heard like the name Roberto Clemente coming from the other room and I went and I and I went and I pulled out an old Roberto Clemente baseball card that I had. I think it was like a fifty six tops Roberto Clemente and I thought, ah, oh, here you know, you can see what Roberto looked like and this is what he looked like when he swung and and uh, I felt a little bit more connected to the eight-year-old and the six-year-old. Our next guest is with the Oregon Sports Card Collectors Association, or the Sports Collectors Association here in the state of Oregon. Terry Neisler, I've known him for a while, met him at a card show, and he's joining us now. Terry, uh, how did you get into collecting? Just like you, John, but I grew up in Chicago, and uh, Ernie Banks just captured my heart, this graceful black man who moved through the game and loved the game like nobody else. And uh, I had this love affair with this guy. I mean, he was just an incredible athlete and graceful as can be. I wanted to play ball like him. And you ended up collecting his cards instead, which is a not a bad alternative. Uh, Terry, thanks for making time for us. Give us an idea. The Oregon Sports Collectors Association, uh, OSCA, uh, how did it start? What purpose does it serve? Uh, help our audience out. Sure. Back in 2020, a group of my good friends, collectors, said, hey, how do we bring young people into the industry, into the playfulness of collecting cards? And we said, you know, I think we've got to reach out a good bit more. We've got to offer some excitement to them, give them some cards. And so we fostered this group called Oregon Sports Collectors Association. But we wanted it to be something more than that. We also wanted to help baseball and softball programs in high schools of need and diversity in Portland. And so we reached out first to a local Rotary Club and said, hey, can you help us with this in terms of maybe sponsoring the show? And then also we called up Park Rose High School's baseball coach, Cameron Baker, and said, would you like some help? Can we help you with something? What would, what would make it better for you and the kids to play ball, enjoy the game, and maybe get involved in collecting cards as well? He said, oh, yeah, come on, throw me into that briar patch. Sure, whatever you need, I'll help. Let's get it done. The, uh, you know, the, the organization it aims to, I guess, it, you know, help uh, promote the, the hobby and, and, and help some local schools. You guys have a relationship with Park Rose High School that's interesting, and you have a big event coming up this Saturday uh, and Sunday as you uh, have your annual card show there. Uh, tell people how they can find it, and how does it how does it benefit Park Rose? Well, first thing, all of the profits that Oregon Sports Collectors Association makes from table fees or auctioning off items such as a Tom Brady rookie card or a Damon, Damian Lillard signed jersey or a Boston Celtic Bill Russell autograph goes directly to the schools. That's our purpose. That's why we do it. Uh, it's going to take place at... Uh, Park Rose High School in their commons at 122nd and Shaver. It uh, starts at 9 o'clock on Saturday. Doors close at 5 o'clock on Saturday, reopens again on Sunday at 9, and closes at 3. Now, we also have 
this authenticator coming there who will take a look at your autograph and for a small fee put the stamp of approval on it. Now, if that was a Babe Ruth card that you had an autograph on, that $15, $20 fee might result in a $2,500 or more dollar card. So that's some things that people like to do in addition to just collect cards, but they become real collectibles, vintage items, if you will. We're talking to Terry Neisler of the OSCA, the Oregon Sports Collector Association. Terry, you, you hit on grading. Help us understand or help uh, maybe some audience members who just think of baseball cards in a box, how grading has changed the hobby. Well, it's enormous. Um, you know, you're really talking about blue chip cards versus venture capital cards, if you will. When you have a blue chip card, say, from the 1950s, and you spoke of Roberto Clemente. Now, that Roberto Clemente, if in 1955, his rookie card, if it's graded a one, might be worth $800. Graded a two, $1,500. Graded a three, 3000 Graded a four, 5000 And it goes all the way up to 10 So grading tells you, are the corners rough? Is there surface wear? Things like that. And so people want to know, particularly for these high-end cards, What's its condition? And there are three different companies who provide that service, and it helps the market. It also, what shall we say, widens the market. Some people may not be able to get as involved because they are more expensive when they're graded and receive a high grade. I've got this wonderful thing at my table called tired cards, cards from 1955 that are battered or, you know, bruised, and I call them tired, and they sell for one-tenth of that value. So everybody ought to be able to get into the, the game of collecting cards. And there's different stratas, whether they're modern or graded or they're vintage. There's different ways that people can get involved. In fact, we're giving away 25 free cards to the first 200 kids that come through the door. And then later on, we'll give away a Damian Lillard signed jersey. I mean, that's what collecting is about, seeing kids really feel like they're part of the game. Terry Neisler, OSCA, the Oregon Sports Collectors Association, is our guest. Event going on at Park Rose High School Saturday and Sunday. Proceeds from the event uh, benefit the Park Rose Athletic Department. Um, Terry, you know, you talk about, you know, trying to get people or young people into sports cards. Um, you know, what they're doing now with modern cards, I'm not, it's not really in my sweet spot. But, I do when I go to shows. I do see that audience. It's refractors. Everything's shiny. Everything's foil. Autographs in the packs. Um, it felt to me like when I walk around the shows, like you know, you'll find a dealer who really just has vintage cards, and the next person over is dealing with more of the Justin Herbert, Kayvon Thibodeau. You know, what's new from Panini? All of that stuff. Uh, how healthy does the hobby feel to you? And and as you look around a typical show. That's a great question, John. It's hotter than ever in terms of the amount of action that occurs. Vintage is as vital and vibrant as it's ever been. The prices and values are going up. The modern stuff, really, they're producing scarcity, if you will. They'll take what's called a base card, and instead of having a white border around it, they put a card with a blue border around it, and they number on the back that we've only printed a 1,000 of these or they put an orange uh, uh, surrounding color and it only printed 500, or 
They produce what you call a refractor, which has a certain rainbow-like shiny glow to it, and they only produced 100. Well, this has created a scarcity of some of those cards and an attraction to a grading of modern cards, which you think to yourself, how could they be worn out if they're brand new? But the cards definitely have uh, tiny little flaws that might appear. So we've got this combination of grading, scarcity created, and now, of course, you've got cards that also have an autograph on them from time to time. And so you really change the nature of collecting. Now, mind you, the most valuable cards still remain the vintage cards because they are historical and they're short printed just by nature. They didn't produce as many back then. But the modern cards also have a place. So I think there's room for both, even though you're a fuddy-duddy and you don't like this modern stuff. Of course, I feel somewhat the same <laughs> yeah. about it, too. Uh, but, I mind you, I do buy modern cards from time to time because, you know, I like players like Julio Rodriguez of the right. Mariners. I like, even though he was a little bit foolish, Mr. Tatis from the Padres. Yeah. Yeah. So those are modern cards, and they're attractive. Terry Neisler. OSCA. Go this weekend, Terry. Park Rose High School. Check out the card show 9 to 5 on Saturday. Doors open again. 9 a.m. on Sunday, Terry? Yes, 9 a.m. on Sunday. We close a little earlier, 3 o'clock on Sunday. All right. All right. Go check it out and support. Thank you, Terry, for joining us. I appreciate you. You bet, John. Thanks so much. There it is. Check it out. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. My kids didn't look at me uh, that impressed. I was really excited to be like, hey, here's what Roberto Clemente looks like. They were listening to a podcast about Clemente. I showed them the card. They looked at it, Anna. Yeah. They checked it out. Yeah. But they're a tough crowd. It wasn't digital. Yeah, I know. You know? Yeah. It wasn't like on a iPad, so. In general, the six to the eight-year-old crowd is real tough to please and impress. <laughs> it only gets harder from there. Oh. You don't have the Roberto Clemente NFT? No, I don't. Now, that might have done something. But I was so excited when I heard Clemente. I, like, ran around the house looking for the card, found it, brought it to the eight-year-old who was snuggled up in her bed listening to a story about Roberto Clemente as she fell asleep. Are you kidding me? This is my moment. And I showed her the card and she looked at it. She said, oh, okay. And then she handed it back to me like 10 seconds later. Not that big a deal. It is a big deal, though, if it makes the five at five. We have the five biggest stories going on in sports. Let's do it. The five at five. Well, some big news out of the state of Oregon. I talked about it earlier in the show. I want to double down with it. The OSAA announced today that the state of Oregon will allow high school athletes to sign NIL deals. High school athletes. It gives an advantage to private high schools, of course, who may entice athletes to come to their school. Again, part of the deal is nobody affiliated with the school can give you an NIL deal, but what does affiliated mean these days? Meanwhile, Bronny James was among five hoops players to land Nike NIL deals. That's right. Bronny James, LeBron James's kid of Sierra Canyon High School, the eldest son of the NBA star, has already got a Nike 
signature shoe, and his dad has a lifetime deal with Nike. So, Bronny James signs with Nike, and athletes in the state of Oregon, high school athletes, can now sign NIL deals. Anna, number two, go. Uh, Kim Kardashian booed at SoFi Stadium over the weekend. Uh (laughs) You said top five most important stories or most interesting sports, somewhat related stories of the day. Um, The reality star gave the L.A. fans yet another reason to vent as the uh, defending Super Bowl champs lost to the Dallas Cowboys. So apparently when they showed her on the Jumbotron, it first sounded like cheers, but then it morphed into jeers. Do you think her her, uh, star has uh, faded at all? Yes. You think she's done? Well, I don't think she's done. I I still think a lot of people are buying her stuff and watching her shows, but... I think it's trendy to boo her. Yeah, that it didn't used to be. Number three, let's talk about the Mariners. Good on the Mariners. Sweep the Toronto Blue Jays over the weekend in their wild card series. Here's how it sounded on the final call. The Blue Jays are down to their final out. Mariners one out away from an unbelievable win here in Toronto. They need one more out. Lead 10-9. Tying run at first. Swing and a fly ball. Center field coming in. Julio. He makes the catch and the ball game is over. The Mariners win the wild card series. They're going to Houston to take on the Astros in one of the most incredible, miraculous finishes and comebacks we have ever seen. The Mariners celebrate with a two-game sweep over the Blue Jays here in Toronto. Seattle will go to Houston for game one of their division series tomorrow, 12-37, first pitch. Game three back in Seattle on Saturday to be determined. Sunday's game four is to be determined as well. Uh, Seahawks are saying they are willing to move their kickoff, by the way, to avoid a potential conflict with the Mariners. They don't want to play head-to-head against the Mariners, so good on that. Anna, number four. How congenial of them. Okay, you probably already talked about this, but I I think it's so funny. Uh, Thanking Donna Marie Mason for this on Twitter. Lane Kiffin's dog, Juice. Have you talked about this already? He's agreed to an NIL deal with the Grove Collective. So the Ole Miss Rebels just recently organized their NIL efforts with the launching of the Grove at the end of September. And one of their first agreements is with Lane Kiffin's dog named Juice. So the the dog will allow for its name, image, and likeness to be used uh, by the Ole Miss Rebels in their branding and marketing efforts. And in exchange, it gets gift cards to Hollywood feed outlets. Man, Doug's got it made. The Grove Collective will also be responsible for the payment of all related taxes in case Juice is subject to IRS audits or inquiries. We don't. We can't have that. Juice. The beginning of the end. Is that a real name for a dog, Juice? Juice. Falcons are in disbelief and upset over a roughing the passer call over the weekend. If you saw Tom Brady get the call uh, against the Atlanta Falcons, Grady Jarrett looped around the right side of the line, came in low, scooped up Tom Brady for what appeared to be a big-time 10-yard sack. Bucks were going to have to punt. Falcons were going to get the ball back. Atlanta would have had a chance to win this football game. 
Not so fast. Flags flew, and just like that, fresh set of downs. Buccaneers ran out the clock. How in the world this constituted roughing the passer? Well, it's left to your imagination, but I talked about this last week. I told you that I thought that the NFL officials and the NFL as a whole would try to do more to protect quarterbacks. It's a violent game. We saw Tua go down. There have been other cases of quarterbacks getting knocked out. Uh, It is a quarterback-friendly game, but let's make no mistake, Tom Brady gets calls. I don't think this is great for the NFL for Tom Brady to be at the center of this thing. It was a bad call. I don't think it was roughing. But uh, Atlanta down six points with 438 left in the game. Thought they were getting the ball back, and they didn't. They lost the football game. Buccaneers ran out the clock. That's our five at five. Five biggest things going on in sports. Guys, how big was the Brady call? Well, the question for me is is if it was the other way around. If Marcus Mariota gets tackled like that, is there a penalty? And in 100% of my mind, that's not a penalty. So that, that I think, is the problem is that since it's Tom Brady, he's gotten these calls before. If it was Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, they're getting these calls, but the lesser quarterbacks aren't going to get it. Like they ha- if they do it next week and they're consistent, that's one thing, but I need to see that before I believe that. Yeah, and in addition, you know, I'm I'm worried that they're only going to get Brady those calls, not because he's Tom Brady, but because he's of his age, you know. So I I really hope the officials aren't calling that because Tom Brady's 45. Because at the end of the day, Tom Brady is 45, but he's choosing to play. He doesn't have to play football. So I really hope they're not giving him the benefit of the doubt because he's out there because of his age. Do you think they are? Do you think Brady's getting this call because he's 45 and he's Tom Brady? Or do you think the league, because of the Tua hit, is now a little more sensitive about what is going on out there? I do think it's a little of both, but the fact that it is Tom Brady, like you said, I think it's a bad look for the NFL because that was my initial thought is, well, Tom Brady gets this call, no one else does. So I'm kind of split in the middle here, but I think the NFL may be a little bit uh, out there to try to get a couple more calls in. Yeah, I, I, I could see I think the argument's there, and I just really hope they're not making the game easier and more gentle for Tom Brady just because he's choosing to be out there at 45 years old. Are you guys okay if they're making it easier and gentle for everybody? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I understand why they're making the game easier on quarterbacks. Quarterbacks are so important. As a Dolphins fan, you know, Tua, the Dolphins are 0-2 since Tua went down. You know, it just depletes your entire season when your quarterback gets hurt. The quarterbacks are the stars of every team. They're by far the most important position. So I understand why they're trying to protect the quarterbacks, but calls like this are a really tough pill to swallow. Yeah, and I think you speak for a lot of people when you say that. Keep an eye on it, though. I think we're going to see a correction in the NFL. It's going to be this middle-of-the-season correction, I think you're going to start seeing some really weird calls where people are going, this isn't football, but I think the aim is they want to keep the quarterbacks on the field. All right, uh, Monday Night Football is coming up here on 7.50 The Game. Uh, The Bald Face Truth will be back tomorrow with another great radio show. Big guests, a lot to talk about all week long. Uh, Bald Face Truth not here for a long time, just a good time.